Um, a few comments before we read this second lesson, this kind of daunting, long second lesson. Um, if we read through this parable and it seems confusing to you, you are in good company. Uh, one theologian described this parable. It's a parable. Parables are supposed to be like fairly straightforward and easy to preach. Um, one theologian described this parable as the problem child of the parables. Another said, quote, why would you preach on this, end quote. Um, and I, I, uh, it's in the lectionary, and so I chose it. It's sandwiched, it's, it's a story about a rich man. It's in between um, three parables that are almost back-to-back-to-back, all about rich men. The first is the prodigal son. Lovely story, right? Easy to preach. The, the son goes away, comes back, the father has his arms open, it's beautiful. Um, the, the third story about the rich man is pretty straightforward. Uh, it's a little terrifying. It's a story of a rich man who neglects the poor his entire life and ends up in eternity, you know, saying, you know, what's happening to me? He said, you had a great life and you ignored the poor your entire life. And um, that's what's happening. And um, it's pretty straightforward, terrifying, but straightforward. Uh, This one is not. It's very uh, confusing. And so if it seems confusing, um, that's okay. At first, that's a little scary as you're preaching, and then you realize you can't really get it wrong because no one knows what it means. Um, And then it's freeing. So we're going to read this text from Luke 16 and explore together what the Spirit might have to say to us. Holy Spirit, um, I pray that you would say what you want to say to this group of people gathered at Grace Chicago this morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Then Jesus said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do? Now that my master is taking the position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another Who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word of the Lord. See what I mean? 
I was in uh, Washington, D.C. this week uh, for a kind of a continuing education sort of program through Duke Divinity School. Um, they, they, they gather uh, people who apply for this program, and there's a grant connected to it for innovative leadership. Um, and so you get a small grant when you get accepted into this program, and you work with this cohort of about 20 people. And I was there in May, and I was there in September. I didn't realize that there was any money connected to it when I applied to it. Someone said, you should apply. And so I was like, the deadline was the next day. And so I like filled out the application and, and, and sent it in. Because I just thought, oh, this will be cool. I'll learn about some of the leadership practices. They use, they combi- it's kind of combined with the divinity school and the business school. So um, it's, anyways, I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I'll do it. I, I trust your recommendation. And I applied. And then at the very end of the first cohort meeting in May, our leader said, um, don't worry about the grant money and writing the grant. Like, we'll talk about that in our next section. You don't have to worry about that. And I leaned over to the person next to me. And I said, what is she talking about like, with the grant money? And that's why everyone else applied. Um, and she was like, yeah, you get, you get like $3,500 for, like, for your organization if you get into this program. And I was like, great, when? That's awesome. Um, so I went back this past week, and um, it's a really wonderful group of people. Um, yeah, 20 people doing like really cool things around the country. I met a woman uh, from the Boston area who's connected to the Greek Orthodox Church, and she works... Um, she works at their summer camp and kind of like their youth and leadership training and stuff like that. Um, I, I took a lift to the airport with her on Thursday. She was flying to an event in Vegas on Friday where she was going to be on a panel with other millennial faith leaders um, talking about what they were doing. So she's, she's working in promoting female leadership in the Greek Orthodox Church. And the Greek Orthodox Church, like, if it's like, you know, in terms of like, institutions that change and don't change, like if, you know, if like the Catholic Church is, well, in our church is like also hard to change, but like, I mean, the Greek Orthodox Church, I mean, that is an uphill battle, getting female leadership in the Greek Orthodox Church. She was going to be on a panel with a woman who was starting a, a female-led open and affirming mosque, and then the other person on the panel was a former fashion designer and model who's Mormon who was starting um, a clothing line for Mormon women. Uh, crazy. What a world. Um, it was, I, I got to spend time with another woman who's probably, probably the oldest woman in our, in our cohort who works at the synod level, kind of the, the oversight level of the Presbyterian church. And um, she's, from, she's from Long Island. And of course, the Presbyterian church has all of this old property, um, you know, just worth millions and millions of dollars on the East Coast. And so in her capacity, and, you know, she's trying to help them think about what they're going to do with this property. And, um, you know, developers, of course, are submitting their bids to buy these and turn them into condos or whatever. And um, they're also trying to think of creative ways that they can use this property. And, um, you know, churches are closing their doors then they're coming up with sort of creative solutions to how to use this space, coffee shops, daycares, um, you know, schools, you know, partnerships in the community. And, and the churches are becoming, uh, at least there are a couple of encouraging stories about the churches sort of becoming these hubs of being the church again. And the church sort of closes their doors, does something unique. There's energy around this church. It kind of begins to restore the reputation just because it's in the, you know, the old Fifth Presbyterian building. And, and then the, like, you, 
you, it, it feels like you're turning a corner and the church is almost starting to like exist there again um, because of the cool stuff that's beginning to happen. Um, there was one guy who owned a real estate company, found out he was about to lose his job, and so he went to everyone and cut their mortgages in half. And then when he got fired, he went and lived with them in the houses. That didn't happen. Uh, that, just making sure you're paying attention. That guy did not exist, but that's the parable that we have this morning. And as I was reflecting on these sort of people who, you know, in, in some ways it feels like the church is up against a wall. It feels like, you know, it's time to throw everything at the wall. Um, I, I felt like there was a, para- like a parallel between sort of this, this, this steward who's like, time to get creative, time to figure something out, time to like look for some out-of-the-box solutions to how I'm going to get by. Um, and that felt like it was the energy in the room. There were no bad ideas. Everyone was sharing what was going on. And um, yeah, and it was, I, I felt like there was a, a parallel between these two stories. This is a story about a man who has a come-to-Jesus moment, a moment of realization. His impending doom is an opportunity for enlightenment, and he pivots his life entirely What's confusing about the parable is that he, he kind of does it out of, you know, self-preservation. He's your run-of-the-mill loan shark. He isn't really wealthy himself. He manages the wealth of someone who was really wealthy. It won't surprise you to hear that almost all of the property and wealth was owned by a handful of men. And they used loans and debt to disinherit people of their land. I read this week that interest was often collected 25%-ish on cash and up to 50% on goods like jugs of olive oil or containers of wheat like we read about in our story. And this man made his money by increasing what people owed, making little deals on the side to extend deadlines for a few pieces of silver, underhanded dealings like that. Tax collectors, similarly, would collect a little bit more than they needed to to make their uh, to make their living. And this guy is probably similar. There are a few different lines of interpretation on this story. One is that this man realizes that he's got two options here. He could collect on these payments. He could go out to them and say, listen, I need your money ASAP. And get that money, either take all of it or, or take his share off the top so that he has a little bit of money to get by on. Uh, but he has this realization that relationships are going to be far more valuable than wealth. Basically, he understands that relationships are more vital for survival than money, and so he makes friends instead of enemies, and it's a pretty smart move. Another interpretation points out that usury, charging any interest on loans, was a violation of Old Testament law. And, um, and so what, what these people owe is not what they started out owing. And, and there's a good... So, so, so the theory is basically that this guy goes out and he, he, makes the, um, he makes the loan what it might have been for originally. And so you, you kind of see his actions through the lens of obedience to the law. He has this sort of, I realize now what's important in life and I'm going to be obedient to the law, cut all these loans back to their original amounts so that my manager is, is right with God and I'm right with God and God will take care of me. Um, and, and, and his boss sees this and commends him for it. Maybe his boss has a little bit of a come-to-Jesus moment. I don't know. Part of the problem is that the dialogue that follows the parable, like the things Jesus says after it, are not helpful for understanding what's going on. 
I don't know if you noticed that. It's, it's almost like Luke accidentally put that dialogue after the wrong parable or something. And it is a parable, and, and there's always mystery with parables. And the truth is, I, I don't think we'll quite ever know for certain what Jesus had in mind as he told this story, other than to know how Jesus summarizes it all. And I think he says two things that summarize what's happening in this parable, the point he's trying to make. He ends with the summary line, you cannot serve God and money. And this is a theme that runs thick in Luke, God and money. The man in the parable was serving money, and to cut debts in half was to recognize that he could no longer serve money. He had to serve God. Um, There is a temptation for me to uh, simply... Ah, yeah, I'm nervous about I'm nervous about this section of my sermon, just to be honest. Um, there's a temptation for us to sort of spiritualize and theologize that claim. You cannot serve God and money. Um, it's not really about money. It's about what you worship. It's about what you serve. And I think that's true, but I think it's also about the money. Um, and I feel a little bit uncomfortable saying that What we should probably say more often, particularly as we're going through Luke, is that we should give more money away. Just like plain and simple. Um, And on the one hand, Jesus is making a much deeper point. But if you get through Luke and what Jesus has to say about money in Luke, and you don't also feel that sort of, I should probably give more of my money away. Um, I I think you've probably missed something. But... um, Wealthy churches, churches of privilege in particular, have made the sin of, of spiritualizing and over-theologizing these commands in Luke to be generous and to give away wealth. And, um, and I think we do that uh, to our detriment. Um, for our power, but also to our detriment. And I'm nervous about saying this because, one, um, I know that a lot of people in this room and in every church don't have money. And, um, and, then, and, and, and so, you know, as I was reading through several of the things Jesus says, and he talks, he, when he's, he knows who he's talking to when he's, when he's speaking, and he speaks differently to the wealthy than he does to people who are not wealthy. And so it's, it's complicated, and so I, I feel that tension. I also know that there are a lot of people in this congregation who are incredibly generous, and, um, and... And I'm, 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 both, I'm challenged and inspired by your generosity. So I, but I also just don't think you can come to these passages in Luke about God and money and not feel that pull that says, plain and simple, like we should probably give more of our money away. Um, and I just, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I feel that pull this morning. Luke, in, in, in Luke, Jesus says things like, um, says, give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes your goods, do not ask for them again. And in Luke, Jesus says things like, if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive the same amount again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. 
You cannot serve both God and money. And giving it away, cutting debts in half, being generous and growing in generosity are the antidote for Zacchaeus and for the shrewd manager. Um, giving money away in one form or another is, 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 is the antidote to not serving God and money. And um, I'll, just, I'll just mention Breakthroughs. Our, our partner on the, the, the east side, East Garfield Park, uh, Breakthrough Urban Ministries, their benefits this October. And um, Sony and I, we're going to host a table this year, um, which we're excited about. And um, if you, if you want to be a part of that event, it's a great opportunity to give. And um, yeah, it should be really fun. And uh, yeah, I just feel like that is, that is the first summary line that Jesus gives about this parable. I don't exactly know how it connects to the parable, um, but this is how he sums it up. You cannot serve both God and money. The second thing that he says that seems summary of this parable is um, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. The other day I was taking out our compost. We started composting recently. We live uh, you know, in a city, of course, and so we actually pay to have someone pick up our compost. We started composting for the same reason that anyone starts doing anything today. Sonia read an article. And I, I didn't even read it. I just took her at her word. This article was compelling, and um, food waste is a problem, and we have the capacity to do something about it, and so we should try. And so the other day, I was taking out our pail of compost down from our third-floor apartment. I lock it to the gate in the alley, and someone, I imagine a guy with a bushy beard and Crocs, comes and takes our compost away and does something with it, and then we go down and get our bucket. I was walking it down, and um, the, as I was like going around the corner, the city dump truck was turning into the alley. And I was carrying our pail, and the, dump, the, the garbage truck went down, and I kind of walked right into that sweet, tangy smell of trash. And um, the woman on the back of the garbage truck looked at me and said, is that for me? Very cheery, actually. And I, I said, no, it's, it's my compost. And she, she sort of, okay, great. And um, I, I sort of watched as the garbage truck bellowed down the alley and just started taking all of the trash from restaurants and dumping it into the back of the garbage truck. And there I was with my pail of compost. <laughs> and... Um, I felt, <laughs> I felt a little silly. Um, no one in the world would know if I just said, yep, here you go, and tossed it. Uh, and that's kind of how 2019 feels a little bit. Like you're standing there with your bucket of compost and the garbage truck is just going down the alley. Um, it feels a little bit like that to work for the church. Bob and I have been we've been chatting recently about how frustrating and, and, and futile some of the stuff, particularly with our denomination, has felt. And um, Yeah, it can often be disheartening. Uh, our denomination is the Reformed Church in America, and it just, you know, it feels like we're fracturing along the exact same political lines that every other organization and group is fracturing along. And it often feels like pigeonholing and name-calling and accepting our divisions and Giving up on conversations is like, we just might as well. There's the dump truck. We're trying to hold this little pail. It's like, what, what are we doing? But uh, on Friday, we had lunch with a, a minister who's kind of on the committee that's really making big decisions about our denomination. And, you know, he's tired. We're tired. But, um, you know, we said, we're not, we're not going to give up on this at, at Grace. Um, 
And, and he said, I'm not going to give up on it, the denomination. And um, it was really encouraging. And I don't know if, if composting matters or if fighting tooth and nail for the church is going to pay off in the ways that I think it should. I can't tell you that being faithful in the little things will lead to a promotion. It might get you fired. I'm not sure what this parable is about, but it seems a little bit to me like Jesus is saying to his disciples and to the church, don't give up. The wily steward has spent far too much time collecting debts rather than canceling them, investing in his career instead of people, but it's not too late. And the slap in the face of his impending poverty wakes him up. He still has time to do things that mattered. Do not die an unlived life. Summing up the parable, Jesus says to the disciples, be faithful in the little things and you will have been faithful in much. Be faithful in the commute. Smile and nod. Be faithful in texts and emails. Take a second to get it right. Be faithful to take your earbuds out when there might be someone worth hearing. Be faithful to call your grandma or to visit her graveside. And bring flowers. Be faithful in putting your phone on silent or turning it off or not bringing it all together. Be faithful in tipping at coffee shops. Be faithful in staff memos and agendas. Be faithful in the way you fire and in the way you hire. Be faithful with aluminum cans and paper bags that you can recycle and reuse. Be faithful to pick up garbage that you did not leave behind. Be faithful with your money. Give more generously than makes sense. Add zeros if you can. Be faithful with your time. Take longer than you ought with friends that you maybe could have forgotten. Be faithful to your partner. Tell them with words that you believe in them because they need to hear you say it, even though it feels a little embarrassing to say. Be faithful to your neighbor and invite them in for a glass of wine, even the neighbor you love begrudgingly. Tell them that you love them. See what they do. Be faithful to the least of these and you will have been faithful to Christ. Be faithful in the little things and you will have been faithful with the big. This text probably raises more questions than it answers. And I think maybe it makes the water a little murky. But regardless, it is never too late to serve God by being faithful in all the small ways. Let's pray. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, um, would show each one of us the ways that we can be faithful this week and the little things, the things that feel insignificant in a world that feels like it needs something huge. Um, give us the, the courage and the endurance and the willpower to just, to just be faithful in the little things, to love people in all the, the small ways that make a world of difference. Um, Yeah, I pray that you would encourage us, give us hope, help us to remember that uh, we're a part of a reality larger than what we can see. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.